So the conversations over here will be filled with human emotions, our workings of justice system, uh, and also we'll share stories of people who are wrongfully convicted. Hi everyone. So uh, this is the first episode and the pilot episode of uh, a new series which we are starting. So this podcast is about Innocence Project London which undertake thorough and objective investigation into alleged wrongful convictions of individuals who maintain their innocence. And Louise Hewitt is the director of this project and she actually initiated this project so i'm grateful that she made me part of this project uh and she's here sitting with me hi everyone perfect so the conversations over here will be filled with human emotions our workings of justice system uh and also we'll share stories of people who are wrongfully convicted and people who are working into the claims of these wrongful convictions so well before we we get into the project uh before we talk about the project uh, a bit about the format so in upcoming episodes possibly either myself or lewis would be hosting or there are students working on the project so they'll be uh, talking either between each other discussing their experience of what they have been doing or they will be hosting someone else so lewis yes let's let's talk about uh You just did an event yesterday. Yeah, that's right. So we each year um we hold an annual symposium and it started 4 years ago. Um and it's about um giving the students that work on the Innocence Project London a space to tell people about what they're doing, to showcase their work and to just basically create awareness about the project, um about the work of innocence organizations more widely because we are a global movement. Um and 4 years ago we started with an audience of about 50 people and um last night last last night we had our um we had our fourth symposium and we had an audience of about 140 people um and we were very fortunate one of the guests was a good friend of mine a guy called John Huffington who is an exoneree from Baltimore and who spent 32 years um in prison 10 of those on death row for a double murder that he didn't commit yes yeah, so This is exactly why uh we want to now lead into the importance of the projects. I mean, you when once I when I came to you, you told me that uh w- one of the very common thing which people say when they have been wrongfully convicted is that they feel like dying. Mm. And uh do, I mean, is there anything around it? I mean, you must have been talking to a lot of people who feel like that, although we think that they're living uh at this point but how many people you th- uh, well you know how many people are actually going through this i mean is there a misconception about how many people are not being convicted wrongfully and secondly what do you think is the experience like that uh feels like because you are most closest to such stories Yeah, they're really good questions. So, taking the first one in terms of the the misconception from the general public. Absolutely. I think 
that people don't realise how hard it is to maintain your innocence in prison. I think there's a um, a public perception that, you know, people play the game. So they'll, they'll plead not guilty. They'll try their luck with the jury. But of course they did it because, you know, why wouldn't you not have a, a, a criminal justice system where those things would fall through the gap? That surely isn't possible. But actually it does. And, and my clients... Um, show me that all the time in terms of the system and the component parts of the criminal justice system not necessarily all working the way they should. Um, I think over in England specifically it is very hard for members of the public, broader public, to realise that wrongful convictions are real. Um, miscarriages of justice are real. And actually, there is a very fine line between the meaning of, of those two terms. So a wrongful conviction implies that somebody has um, been put in prison for something that they didn't do. So that can relate to someone who is innocent and just, just has either mistakenly been identified as that individual or for some way, shape or form, um, their defence didn't necessarily, was, wasn't as effective as it should have been in court. But equally, a wrongful conviction can apply to someone who is guilty of the offence, but those component parts of that criminal justice system haven't necessarily worked in the way they should. Due process in the court process hasn't taken place. Um, and they've ended up in prison without a fair trial, maybe. And in terms of miscarriages of justice, that implies that no one's to blame. Something just went wrong in that process. It's a miscarriage. It's a travesty. Um, and I think the public, as I, I speak about the general public a lot, but I think it's very tough for people to get to grips with the fact that wrongfully convicted people, majority of them are innocent. And it's very, very difficult um, to maintain your innocence, as I said, in prison. You don't get... Um, you're, you're, you're seen as not engaging with the system, not engaging with your guilt, engaging with the sentence. Um, and it's really, really hard. So when I get clients writing to me saying, I've been in prison for 16 years and I've maintained my innocence and this is why, you do listen, you do think, okay, okay, let's have a look at this. Let's, let's, see, let's see what that story is and, and let's see kind of what's happened basically. In terms of figures and numbers, we don't know. Um, there is no, I th so in America, just to give you a bit of context and contrast, there is a um, national register of exonerees. So every state feeds into that register somebody who has been exonerated. So somebody who has been wrongfully convicted. Every state will, will give the names of those people to that national register. Over here, where the issue is that the conviction is found to be unsafe and the conviction is quashed, it's not necessarily recorded that that person has been maintaining their innocence. So they're not exonerated in the same way. Their conviction is found to be unsafe. Innocence is more thought of in this system as a, as a moral value and so doesn't necessarily have a place. Um, and you can't, I can't argue with that. 
in terms of the way our system is set up. We have to work with the position that if someone is maintaining their innocence and there is a reason why, it has to be because there is something that makes that conviction unsafe. That's what we have to base our arguments on as a project. So there's there's lots of little intricacies that weave into the work that we do. Um, and, and right at the heart of it is the students creating that awareness about uh, unfortunate situations that a lot of people find themselves in. The registry you talked about in the US, do they have any numbers that how many people have been reported in different states or yearly? Yes, they do. Um, off the top of my head, I don't know what they are, but every year at the annual Innocence Network Conference, they have the register there mm-hmm. and it grows year on year. And they have they bring all the exonerees that come to that conference to the stage and they can't fit on the stage anymore. We'll put the number maybe in the description of yes. the podcast. Yeah. Uh, we'll maybe come back to it because this seems like a really interesting topic, as you said intricacies around maintaining your innocence i mean i'm sure that if we look an example of a single person and maybe go through it it would be really interesting but maybe it would be uh, now the time to introduce the london innocence project you said it's a global project mm-hmm. and uh, but the one which you are directing is london innocence project so maybe if you want to start either with the london one or with the global one it's up to you yeah certainly so the The Innocence Project started off as the um, Innocence Project University of Greenwich back in 2010. And we were then one of 40 um, similar projects that were run out of higher educational institutions, so run out of universities. Um, And we were managed by um, what was then um, the Innocence Network UK, which was run out of Bristol University. And so my colleague and I, my co-founder, Christian Humble and I, Um, applied to Bristol University to become an innocence organisation, an innocence project, as as it was termed then. Um, And we successfully did. We got our first case. And probably, I think it's realistic to say, didn't quite know how we were going to go about it. But, you know, the, the Innocence Network UK had some helpful guidance documents and And along the way, I've met numerous other people that work in this area, so have been a great help. But as I said, we started working on our first case, which was um, a triple murder case. And we had five students. Um, We had that case for about, I think it's probably about three years before we then drafted an application to the Criminal Cases Review Commission um, and then passed that case back to the client's appeal solicitor who was then going to top and tail it and um, submit it. There's been some other complications along the way in terms of that specific case but that's that's what we started off with. Um, back in 2014 the Innocence Network UK um, stopped running so all of those innocence organisations that were previously managed by this UK network were left to kind of um, be autonomous themselves so pick up the work and 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 carry on with the work if they chose to we chose to um and we by that time we got another case so we had a couple of cases that we were looking at and working through and we'd realized um 
how we'd like to work the project in terms of getting the students getting the best possible learning out of it. Um, and then in 2016, we applied to become a member of the Innocence Network, which is based over in um, the US. And we were successful. And so we've been a member of the Innocence Network ever since. And currently, we're the only Innocence Project um, that is trademarked as the Innocence Project, which is why we trademarked the Innocence Project London. Um, and we're only with the current member or the only member um, in uh, England, Wales and Northern Ireland at the moment. Um, there's a Cardiff Innocence Project that has a license to operate as an Innocence Project, but they don't have membership of the network. And I work very closely with Cardiff. They've, they've been hugely successful in their work. So... Um, so yeah, so that's that's how we yeah. came about, really. So the, maybe uh, to talk about the model of the project, that how it actually works here, uh, would do you think it would be useful if we talk about one of the cases you might have been working on? Yeah, definitely. And then work through the model while describing how the case was going on? Yeah, certainly. I will just say a little bit in terms of what that model looks like. So um, there is this model model of innocence that, as I've said, it started off in America, started off um, in New York. Uh, the New York Project was the New York Innocence Project was the first founding project, as it were. And this, this model, this innocence model, um, is built upon the fact of individuals who have maintained their innocence, they've exhausted the appeals process, and um, the work undertaken is to deconstruct a case because we work at the end of the criminal justice system. So um, we work in a space where the conviction has been done, it's been dusted, and the students work at the end to unpick it, to deconstruct it, to look at how our client was convicted, what evidence was used, and whether there is a possibility of identifying a new legal argument or new evidence that wasn't available at trial or on appeal that could subsequently form the basis of an application to the Criminal Cases Review Commission. Now, the innocence model in the US works very well because it's a model and it's based on innocence and you can be exonerated. So you have a finding of innocence um, over in America. Of course, we don't have that here. So using that innocence model, we've had to manipulate it to work in a criminal justice system that finds convictions unsafe. It hasn't been easy. Um, identifying as, a, as an innocence project clearly attracts ideas of finding of innocence and factual innocence, um, which we do. It underpins the basis of our work. But we have to work in the parameters that actually whatever new evidence or new legal argument we put forward, whilst we believe the client in terms of them, them maintaining their innocence and they're saying that they're factually innocent of the crime, we have to work with the concepts of putting forward evidence, as I've said, or a new legal argument that makes the conviction unsafe. And so it's a slightly different concept. And the, the main reason why this is the difference is because in UK, the model is, what is the UK model? Uh, how how different of the is, innocence yes, model yes yes so the uk the uk model um hugely less accessible i think so in the us in different states you have um the prosecutor so projects have normally 
run by um, uh, active or practicing lawyers. They have direct access to the prosecutor. They can talk about the case. They can file directly to get the case back into court through various steps of their litigation process. Um, because you have the state level and then you have the federal level. So where states are dealing with a state level of situations, they have direct access to that court process. Of course, we don't. So working with the model that we have in terms of innocence, and as I've just explained, in terms of using the evidence to find the conviction unsafe, we've also got to work with um, the Criminal Cases Review Commission. So we can't make a direct application back to court. I'm not a practicing lawyer, neither are my students. I work with some fabulous practicing lawyers who give up their time for free. Um, but we have to make an application to the Criminal Cases Review Commission and they have their own process and procedures in terms of what they look for um, in order to refer a case back to the Court of Appeal. So you could possibly describe our, um, our model if you want to refer back to that innocence model, as being more restricted in terms of kind of access to the court process. Um, but returning to what you said, talking about one of our cases, um, we currently are working on a case, um, and I can say the client's name because he's, he's given me permission earlier to do this. So the case of Leon Wilson, who was um, convicted of um, murder under the principle of joint enterprise. So the principle of joint enterprise is where um, one or more people can be held equally responsible um, for the actions of the principal. So secondary parties can be held equally responsible for the actions of a principal party. So, for example, Raza, you and I will go and commit a robbery. That's our joint venture. That's our joint enterprise. And um, this case wasn't a robbery, it was a murder and the uh, the people involved, the four or five people that were the sentenced for the murder, um, were all accused of being part of a joint enterprise to murder um, and attempt to murder somebody else. Um, the evidence that was used in that case and some of the evidence that we deal with was um, very grainy CCTV evidence. Um, it's very difficult to see anyone on there. Um, there was evidence of the client's car being at the scene, but he doesn't deny being at the scene. He was, he was there. He was out on a night out, so he's never denied being there. Um, and then there were probably in excess of 20 witnesses, all of which who gave evidence as, as to different types of knives that were used. So we've got uh, a witness saying there was a samurai sword, a witness saying that there was um, kitchen knives, We've got witnesses saying that there was a normal sword carried in a sheath um, and other witnesses saying there were, there were pen knives or flick knives. Um, and it was this knowledge, this idea of all of these knives that you couldn't possibly not see um, that underpins the conviction in terms of the joint enterprise. So the idea that they all knew about the knives, they all had a knife, and then they all proceeded um, to carry out that joint venture in terms of carrying out that murder. So if I understand it correct, joint venture means that if uh, you and I are associated somehow and then we went to do, as you're saying, the robbery, mm -hmm. 
are we doing the robbery or is it just that we were associated and you did it and now I am part of it? Oh, Raza, so, okay. okay. So there are three types of joint enterprise. Okay. The first type, the joint venture, would be you and I going to carry out the robbery. So we both have an agreement to carry out the robbery. We both go and do that robbery. That's that's the joint enterprise. Allegedly. Okay, alleged, yes, sorry, alleged. We're not going to go and do a robbery. Um, the second type is aiding and abetting. So, for example, I will go and carry out the robbery. You drive the car that gets me away from the robbery. You've aided and abetted my crime. The third type is slightly more complex and is called parasitic accessory liability. And that's quite similar to what you've just described. So that's where you and I will go and commit the robbery, okay? But in the process of that robbery being committed, I might pull out a knife that you didn't know about and stab the cashier. However, you could potentially still be held to have the same intent for my actions, which would be to kill. And that's why it's called parasitic accessory liability, because you're a parasite, essentially, to my crime. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, it's a pleasure. <laughs> so um, there are the three areas of joint enterprise. It's not in statute, so it's not in legislation at all. It's developed through case law, so it's come up and developed through the courts which is why it has a number of problems and actually a lot of our cases that we get to assess a lot of applicants have been subject to joint enterprise. Okay, do you want to continue? Do you want to finish this story? Yes, yeah, so, yeah. okay. So um, Leon was convicted and we've had his case for about three years. I've been working with his barrister, Samantha Riggs, from 25 Bedford Row. Samantha was junior counsel at his trial and also on appeal. And it was her that came to me and said, um, you know, I've got this case, it doesn't sit well with me. Um, I, I don't think this guy should be in prison. And so we've started looking at it and, um, yeah, there's there's no evidence of any huge samurai swords on the CCTV or huge knives. Um, Leon himself maintains his innocence in terms of he had no knowledge of any of those knives being in his car. He went for a night out with four friends, um, drove them, knew about the altercation that had taken place. Um um, but didn't know that there were any knives involved and certainly didn't know that that was the intention of one of those parties in that car. So we're in the process now of, uh, or the students are in the process, not me, I'm overseeing it, but they're looking to make that application to the Criminal Cases Review Commission based on quite a lot of work that they've done um, around the notion of intent, conditional intent, um, and also about other other areas that they've they've been looking at in terms of the medical information um, about the the size of the wounds that were inflicted, and to whether that actually they could have been caused by a samurai sword or not, and that's come back with a in the negative. Um, we've had someone look at that, so that's that's what they're doing at the moment, basically. And the crazy part is that this is not something very this this what happened to your client is not something really extraordinary. No, not at all. It was a just, night out. Just another night out. It was a night out. It was a night out. Um, it was night out at a nightclub, and um, yeah, it 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 went wrong basically. And um, he came he came out of a chicken shop. 
And I only laugh because of the irony that you go in to get food from a chicken shop and then come out and find this incident happening in front of you. Um, but there is actually no physical evidence that puts him at the t- at that moment when somebody stabs somebody else. There isn't anything there. Okay, so um, this this is yeah this one of the things which I've heard is that um, and this is not directly related to it, but it's that how these ordinary situation can turn into these lifetime of misery or sentences, even when the person has actually done something. And mm-hmm. one of the example could be just a bar fight where someone punched yeah. another person and then they punched back. And the punch which went back was the one which connected somehow and they just went unconscious and hit the pavement and pa- died. And yeah. that's it. And that is the person. Now the other person... The only crime is that their his jaw or her jaw was not was actually strong enough to take the punch, and it. So yeah, this is this is even I'm I'm saying that the how complicated some of the justice situations can be even if, you know, you are going to prison and especially when it comes to a case like this when there is clear innocence and still you're struggling so much and the students are struggling so much. It's it's a tough journey to go through. Um, do you want to maybe uh, expand more on some of the some of uh, some some of the particular cases which uh, might be extremely hard than the other ones? Is is because is that that might reveal some of how the justice system actually works? Or maybe we can just talk about how the justice system is working now. Um, I think probably a more general overview would probably be more helpful because I think, um, so one of our speakers at the event last night, um, Martin Hewitt, who is chair of the National Police Chiefs Council, spoke about a criminal justice system, but it's not really a system. He described it as its bits. You get the police bits, you've got the Crown Prosecution bits, you've got the courts bits, and then you've got the prison bits. And they're all parts of the system. Are they talking to each other effectively? Probably not. Do they need more people in all of those parts of the system? Absolutely yes. Do they need more money? Absolutely yes. Can you describe it as a system? Well, we do, but it's not working as one. And so, and I think that really epitomised it for me, actually, because it's very, it, it appears from my work that it is very easy to send people to prison and some could argue well you know there's some horrible things that have happened and and I think for for victims families and people on the other side I can absolutely see if I was putting myself in their shoes why you would want that system to work so effortlessly and so well and you'd want the bad person to end up in prison, the person that's responsible to end up being punished. Absolutely, I don't disagree with that at all. But it just seems too easy sometimes, especially under the principle of joint enterprise, to scoop up people and use evidence in generality, in very general terms, often circumstantial, um, to put in front of a jury. And and the jury themselves, you know, it's, it's quite hard being on a jury. You're listening to information. 
you're going to have um, bias. Absolutely. We've all got our little biases and our quirky ways, and that's going to come out in a court setting because it, why wouldn't it be? Uh, there's a piece of research, and I, I, I can't uh, rem- recall who it's been done by off the top of my head, but there's a piece of research that says that juries make up their mind about the defendant within the first few minutes of them watching them in the dock. And so whilst I have a complete respect for our system, and actually a lot of the time it works, it does work, but there are times when it doesn't. And I think the point is that there is such a restrictive mechanism at the moment to challenge those times when it's evident, using the evidence that it's not worked properly, but we're so restricted in how we can do that because once that appeal has ended, that appeal process has ended, you have, or the client or one has, no access to um, any post-conviction disclosure. So they can't get, they can't um, necessarily get hold of any evidence that was used or DNA for retesting or CCTV evidence because the police are under no general obligation to disclose that to you. Um, it's, It's a bit like a postcode lottery. You have to go to each police force individually. You have to explain the situation. You have to get hold of the right person, the person that's going to make that decision. That's quite arduous. That takes quite a long time. Um, but it's very, very difficult to do that if you're in prison and if you haven't got any help on the outside. Um, and then it makes the application, you make this application to the Criminal Cases Review Commission. They look at whether there is a real, their test is whether there is a real possibility that the Court of Appeal will find the conviction unsafe. But real possibility is quite a high threshold. It's not defined. So it's a very difficult and frustrating process to be part of and to work in. Um, And every time I look at a case and every time we're putting an application together, for the Criminal Cases Review Commission. I'm learning something new. I'm seeing something new in a different way. I mean, we are, of course, you, you, you said it beautifully. We're not talking about that, oh, let's just get rid of something. We're talking about the intricacies of a system yeah. and maybe looking at things which are working against the actual value why we have put the system at first place. Yeah. Now, Another problem with, you know, you said, oh, yeah, of course we do make uh, our mind up, you know. No, no, of course we are generalizing we, that we see a person and we, you know, uh, decide. We pass the judgment, yeah. don't we? Of course we and, do. And, and it's fine. I mean, we not, the, the reason why I'm saying is because the other part of the research is that uh, it was really necessary in mm-hmm. our old time. You might not have more than a few minutes if you're meeting someone I'm talking about in agricultural society 10,000 years ago. Yeah. That's when our, well, not 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 like, not just a few, <laughs> few years back. I mean, mm. so yeah, that's where our instincts and that's where a lot of our unconsciousness has been developed. And this is, of course, a lot of research. We do have to understand we don't really know about the human beings itself Absolutely, still. Absolutely, yeah. Still. Yeah. So how come we can create a system which is... Two hundred years old, maybe some some something like that. Well, okay, hundred years old. You know, you you told me nineteen oh seven. Nineteen oh seven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Court of appeal. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, so now we have better understanding, maybe what we had of human beings themselves, yeah. their behaviors, our own consciousness. If we are updating everything about ourselves, we definitely have to update 
what is one of the most important, you know, I, I would say foundation. It's been described as a foundation of a society or a civilization, whatever the word is for collective, a large number of human beings living together. So the justice needs to be there and the, the justice system, uh, which has been going on, is pretty outdated probably. And if we have a space and we have people like you, uh, the conversation is what you might have been talking about that how it's divided and yeah. as much as you interact with is the frustration of seeing the possibility of improvement uh, makes it even harder to you know emotionally sustain. Uh, oh, it is. This is hard work. Okay. I mean, yeah, I yeah. don't under no illusion. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I always so. I attend the Innocence Network conference, which is where all the global innocence projects um, get together as members of the Innocence Network. And we have a director's meeting every time. And so I sit in that director's meeting and all the directors of the project stand up and talk about their successes and we all clap and cheer. And then it gets round to me and there I am standing up going, no successes to report. But, and I'll find something positive to say, um, but it's tough. And you do, I've had numerous conversations with friends that work at other projects globally. And sometimes you do think, why am I doing this? Why, why am I bothering? I can't, I can't make a change on my own. I can't, I can't fight the system. I can't, and it's not about, it's not a fight of the system it's a fight for the system to make it better and to improve it and I'm one person I don't practice law I'm really conscious of that I'm an academic lawyer I work with some brilliant practitioners who do practice who give their time to me very generously pro bono for which I thank them um but I don't practice what and I you think well what can I do what what, what am I doing any good am I Am I doing anything that's making a difference? And then people like John Huffington come over from the States, his first time over to England. And he sits in front of the audience last night and talks about his 32 years in prison, 10 of them on death row. And he just basically says one person can make a difference. One person can make a difference. He said, you're all here talking to an audience about the work you're doing, about the difficulties you're facing, about the problems with the criminal justice system. In fact, Martin Hewitt was listening to some of those cases. And when he um, took the stand to speak, he said, you know, I find it really, really difficult to understand how Leon Wilson, who I was talking about earlier, was convicted on the basis of so many different eyewitness testimonies who all said a different size of a knife, yet there's no evidence of that on the CCTV. And if there's no evidence of that medically in terms of those injuries, then why is he in prison? Why is he in prison for murder? And so when you've got a police professional saying that, and you've got an exoneree who've spent 32 years in prison saying that, then you think, okay, okay, it's worth it, okay. But it's you need that reminder sometimes because it's really, you do feel like you're, you're wading through treacle uphill in a storm in the dark and it's never going to get any better. 
Yeah, like it's like I can see that the life of an individual is somehow is intertwined with the complexities of uh, our society where these kind of institutes are supposed to be gratefully helping people like the these what you're talking about. And I, well, I I don't know, you know, I can't say. Of course, from sitting here across it does feel like that it is beautiful what you are trying to do but again same to be honest who knows we don't know it and you know we I'm just another individual sitting here talking about Raz I like the description of beautiful yeah well yeah of course but 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 the thing is that uh, uh you talk about your individual work and the the exhaustion the the emotional physical exhaustion which you are going through and uh, I am sure that if we are somehow part if we have created the system even mm. though the system in itself is a bit rigid and going through it I think if we are changing like that if we are letting go of some of our precious time or wants or whatever we could have pursued by changing yourself right now I'm sure that the change would be felt and and maybe it might take a little bit longer and that that's that's the hard part yeah. i guess no yeah. it is but no you're right actually because um my clients the the cases the people whose cases we work on never failed not to let me know how grateful they are that someone listens um that someone listens enough to work on the case and look at it and to actually drill down into all that detail um it's very it's a part of clinical legal education that's very distinct and very intricate because you've got this case that's been convicted it's been done and dusted and then you've got to work backwards and unpick it and deconstruct it and that means understanding everything from the back to the front in a very kind of distinct way that you wouldn't normally look at a case it means questioning the judgment it means developing some critical thought it means being innovative with the law with what looks like fresh evidence which looking for the for the gaps where the arguments can be made that's great and it's brilliant um and between the students and the clients absolutely it's worth doing just every now and again every now and again just a little little bit every now and again you just it, it's really good to be reminded of that and actually last night was a really really good reminder that's that's fine we 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 live in the middle of meaningful and meaningless so yes. so that's that's i like that yeah that's that's pretty honest statement you we shouldn't be just constantly obsessed with meaning all the no. time then we create meaning out of nothing sometimes i like that a lot yeah yeah, yeah. but but okay so what i love most about and let, let maybe we can just end it on this one yeah. uh, is that um i have heard a lot of these empathetic scenarios where you know something is going horribly wrong in other part of the world uh, and when someone talks about it it's a lot about you you want you well we try to engage people through making them feel guilty mm. but this is this while having a conversation with you we do understand that there is injustices going on right now mm-hmm. uh very close to us and the same kind of model exists with the different life forms planet 
it also exists you know modern slavery child child uh, labor is working somewhere yeah numerous injustices yeah numerous injustices at different levels going on yeah. and and i find it harder that when people try to engage others only based on feeling guilty mm. which is like you can use empathy to make someone feel guilty yeah. for a large scale which yeah. is not we are not evolved like that so you can use it but having a conversation with you this is not what i felt and it's actually really empowering because you are working and taking it on yourself and you're informing everyone mm. but there is a very specific way which if someone wants to engage it there is a way a career you can dedicate your life or you can dedicate some of your time to actually help around these issue and and i think no matter how hard the goal is which possibly might be and i think we should talk about that in maybe in the next episode so if people like it we might discuss it about how the justice system was set up and what ha- it has become now and what the social scenarios are and what are oh, the yeah. places so maybe we can talk about it next time no definitely but at least there the, no matter how hard this goal so, seems like there is a goal and that is like a good news yeah no you're right it is and there is a goal and i think and you know what for every every listener for every person that attends the symposium they walk away with something new whether it be information about the cases whether it be information about how a piece of evidence has been used or whether it be just the idea oh people can be wrongfully convicted that's that's good because actually the more critical thought the more critical consideration you have about our criminal justice system and the criminal justice process that we go through and the more scrutiny that can be placed on it that can only be for the better in terms of holding it to account and all those component parts that i described earlier in terms of all of those being held to account because the more they're held to account the more the system becomes collegiate and the more it works better and all of those individuals in that system work together and do and make that machine work the way that it should brilliant thank you thank, thank you, you. For, no that's brilliant okay people Hopefully see you next time. Definitely. Look forward to see uh, uh having this conversation again. Yeah. Bye. Bye.